Hello, gentle listener. It's me, Ed Fortune. That means that you're listening to The Bookworm on FabRadioInternational.com via StarburstMagazine.com. I'm your host, Ed Fortune, and I'm here with my ho- the host... <laughs> no face. Hello, everyone. So, coming up next, we will be talking about Peter F. Hamilton's The Abyss Beyond Dreams. Dun, Which has dun, to be dun, said dun. that way. Legally, we have to say The Abyss Beyond Dreams. <laughs> Due to a legal contract, I've just made up in my head. Uh, and you're reviewing... I'm reviewing Primal Storm, which is book two in the Grand Soul Manor Chronicles by R.A. Smith. We have a fantastic interview coming up, and we will also be doing book news and general chat. So you've got all of that coming up next. are playing the strangest musical instrument in the world. The only instrument that is not touched by hand. You ask for it. So, in case you aren't familiar with the ground, we are on fabradiointernational.com you can find all their lovely social media via fabradiointernational.com if you want to find other versions of the show uh, you can go on to Tumblr and we have a nice lovely list we are Radio Bookworm on Tumblr happens we're also Radio Bookworm on Twitter we're also Radio Bookworm on Facebook uh, our raven is called Radio Bookworm our owl is called Radio Bookworm we're on Mixcloud we're on iTunes if there's something else that you want us to be on let us know um, shall we yeah, um, obviously the station's also on Twitter and Facebook, so you can find us on Fab Radio International. Um, and don't forget to check out Truly Outrageous Productions. And Starburst Magazine, issue 4 or 5 is out. Now that we've got all of those adverts out of the way, and thank you for your patience, gentle listener. Um, or not so gentle listener, if, you're not, if you don't want to be gentle, don't be gentle, just tell us to say, I'm an angry listener. Um, <laughs> tell us on Facebook, we love it. Getting on with the news, UG um, Foster... Uh, Dragon Con organiser and short story writer, winner of the Nebula Award for, uh, well, winner of the Nebula Award, uh, award-winning writer, columnist and editor, has passed away um, due to, I believe it was uh, respiratory conditions. Uh, American author, author um, a lovely woman from all accounts, never met her myself, um, some, wrote some fantastic short fiction. Um, passed away very recently on just just literally yesterday. yesterday. Um, so that is very sad. That's our first piece of news. Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, our thoughts go out to friends and family at this time. So, um, other other news. Um, we're going to very quickly talk about Alora's Cave. Alora's Cave uh, is suing a dear author book blog for defamation. We are backing away gently from this entire thing because we don't want to get hit with legal uh, the legal implications. Alora's Cave do erotic fiction. Um, you should read the dear author book blog. You should read what they're saying. You should be able to work out for yourself what this is all about. Um, we don't think it's very nice. We think shenanigans are happening, but we're not going to speculate on shenanigans because we can't. Because we can't afford the legal action. <laughs> uh, essentially. Uh, the Streisand effect, however, is in full swing, and lots of bloggers are talking about it. So we thought we'd very quickly mention it. Um, what else is going on? Um, oh, shall we talk about the trains? Oh, let's talk about, let's talk about, about the trains! trains. Uh, Amtrak residency writers include uh, Bill Willingham, uh, creator of Fables and other sci-fi authors. Basically, basically Amtrak, which is this big American railway. Um, the American Railroad Operator, yes. Um, are doing this residency program where they get someone to live on a train. Not like a hobo, but like a, like a proper person. <laughs> um, well, presumably like Dr. Sheldon Cooper in first class. Oh, yay, Sheldon. Probably, probably in, you know, probably... Just essentially hold themselves up. I think. I think for Amtrak, they're trying to point out the fact that you can spend a large amount of time just you know following the road and in that grand American tradition of going on the road. Um, so people include Bill Willingham, which many of you will know from Fables. If you don't know what Fables, if you like the American TV series Once Upon a Time, Fables is like that. I would argue it's better. 
Yeah, actually, actually, what you want to say is, once upon a time, is like fables because fables came first. Fables did come came first. If I was if I was in Time Warner, if I was like DC Comics, I would be cursing, <laughs> quite literally, possibly, given the fact that it's all about fairy tales. Yes, but yeah, I would be I would be like kicking kicking leaves all over the place. Um, <laughs> He's already, anyway, Willingham's already working on a new project for Image Comics called Restoration, which is about mythic gods returning to Earth to rule over the modern-day human race. That sounds like our sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, young adult author Anna Davis uh, has ghostwritten ten books for Ally Entertainment and written three novels under her own name, including Wrecked, which is a gender-swapped version of The Little Mermaid. Ooh. The last two books have involved murder over social media, so we'd be interested to see if she goes through a train-based horror story. That'd be quite cool. Um, the the uh, fellow fellow radio presenter type NPR's pop culture happy hour Glenn Weldon is also writing stuff. He wrote Superman in an authorized biography. Um, he's we have no idea what he's writing, but apparently it might be a train-based hero thing. Uh, must be better than Steel, because Steel was a bit rubbish. Yeah. Um, we've got a tech thing. Uh, the guy, oh, someone from Black Tusk, the guy called Stephen Septo Toulouse, is working on stuff. Uh, he wrote stuff for Gears of War. He's now writing a geek culture comedy thing. Uh, and Xenia Anaski, uh, apologies if I've gotten that wrong, who wrote the. Senyanska. Sorry, is it Senyanska? I'm singing at you. Who wrote The Siren Suicides? Ooh. Um, is writing a thing called Tube. Oh, about a female flesh-eating train. Oh, that's a bit weird. Bit weird. I've got a sample of it here. She had it breathe. The train. She could have sworn it took. It took a slow inhale. Her toes pulsed, reminding her that they hurt from practice. She glanced. She cast a glance around the compartment and continued unwrapping her left pointe shoe. The right one lay sprawled on the mauve car- carpet, squished like a moth. Bleeding again, she sighed. Yeah. Um, in in mainstream book news, um, big names are giving a backing to books on my bag, which is a whole thing with tote bags and books, which is hats, which starts the eleventh of October. It'll appear on telly. It's got all the authors you actually care about and some celebrities that you don't. Tracy Emmons involved. Um, Brian Cox is involved. David Jason's involved. Tony Parsons is involved. Uh, Randall Fiennes. Random Penguin. I mean, Penguin Random House is involved. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes, Random Penguin's involved. Of yeah, course they are. Yeah, we love Random Penguin. Penguin Random. Random Penguin. <laughs> Penguin Random House. Please, please don't hit us again. I love uh, We love you. We do. We, we, we honestly do. To be fair, we, would, we wouldn't gently do this if we didn't love them. Yeah, yeah. that's very true. Um... But yes, so uh, look out for Books in My Bag, which is tote bags and books, and you might be able to get your hands on some nice, either cheap or free books out of the whole thing. Um, Patterson, James Patterson, that, that millionaire Word author. machine. Word machine, word cannon, pretty much. <laughs> word Gatlingen, my word, the, the amount of stuff that he produces. Uh, he's already uh, doled out £130,000 to 73 independent bookshops across the UK and Ireland. This is part of his big thing to support indie bookstores book that we talked about a little bit ago. I think we talked about it about two months ago on the show. Mm. Um, that's about half of what he intends to throw out. Um, it's uh, going to come up to about a quarter of a million in total for the UK. Um, it's a whole, whole pile of bookstores. Um, 73 of them, including Chalton Bookshop in Manchester. Oh, very cool. And displaying massive bias, far from the madding crowd, in Linlithgow in Scotland. Oh, it's a good shop, that. I do like <laughs> far from the madding crowd. Very, very fond of it when I'm, when I'm in that part of the world. Um, Evan, Flo and Chorley as well. Oh, yeah. oh very cool. Um, oh, with Giello in, in Motherwell. Oh, there's a whole pile of... We, we could basically sit there going, ooh, ooh, haven't we been to some interesting parts of the UK? Aren't there some lovely bookshops? Far, yeah. far from the madding crowd in Linlithgow are going to create a Hagrid's Hut children's room in their existing hidden stock room. The room will be a children's space for activities and storytelling. Oh, very cool. That sounds that absolutely sounds awesome. lovely. That's the sort of thing you should be doing. That Because, so, uh, I mean, we've talked about this before, but we are starting to see the rise of retail places, especially indie bookstores, becoming mm-hmm. a kind of... Uh, like a, a sub-library yeah, community yeah. space. 
Um, I really, really like that. I mean, that's how I mean that's how Treadwell's works. It's how a whole lot of other bookstores work, where you go in, you you get you enjoy a lecture, you enjoy a chat, and it's just generally quite fun. I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's like you become part of a, a massive nerd community. Yay, nerd communities! Yay! Uh, this week on Amazon versus Hachette. Oh, oh dear! Really? Uh, Hachette are creating a single children's division, merging their three different divisions into I one from January 2015. Hachette have plainly decided to leave everybody else to fight over this nonsense, and while they just get on with their business. I think the truth is that they're in love, and Amazon is pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I can see that. That makes sense. <laughs> but there's an AU fanfic in there somewhere. Oh, oh, oh the marvellous book baby that would be. Um, if you if you want to write that short story, please don't send it to us. Send oh, it. no, send it. Send it. Yeah, send it to Nympha. Send it to Nympha. And I will promise you, if you send me a Asheta slash Amazon story, I will read it live. Um, yes, this week, Authors United is calling on the US Department of Justice to launch an antitrust inquiry into Amazon. Has Authors City said anything yet? No, no. Oh, dear. Writers, Rangers, any of the other football teams? <laughs> yes. So, so, so seriously, no. If you if you write that alternate fiction, put it on, put it on our Tumblr. We'll love you for it. Yeah, you said I, I, up to about five hundred words, and I'll le- I'll read it live. Um, we also, I might also send you a book as a thank you. Yeah, we have books to give you. So yeah, go on, go for it. Do it, do it. So um, coming up next, I'm going to talk about Peter F. Hamilton's The Abyss Beyond. Embrace the alternative. So I'm reviewing The Abyss Beyond Dreams. We need Brian Blassett to do that. Uh, it's available via Pan Macmillan, a.k.a. Tor Books. If it drops on your head, you will die. Uh, Peter F. Hamilton has a massive reputation for writing books that... Are massive. If you, <laughs> uh, that are huge. If if I was to throw this at you, you would actually be quite severely injured. Um, <laughs> they gave this to me uh, start of August. I've just about finished it. Well, no, I have finished it. That's why I'm reviewing it. But I, I got, <laughs> you know, I got to the end. It took me a while. The thing is, the thing is, it's not because um, it's such a huge book and it's dense. It's the thing with because I know the score by now. Peter Hamilton. He writes huge books that you can't actually put down. So you need to kind of clear time in your your, your kind of headspace and your your, your, your agenda, space yeah. and your agenda because otherwise otherwise you will be tied into this brick of a book, um, and they're great because you you know they are I think they're pretty much designed for holidays in the sense that I mean obviously he hasn't he hasn't deliberately sat down and gone I will create a book for holidays. But <laughs> he he has quite kind of created he, his style is one of those things where it kind of it lives in your house for a few weeks while you read it. And whereas, say, with George Orwell Martin's stuff, you can kind of, you know, you put them down and you and go back. Because his style is very space opera meets soap opera in many ways, mm. you kind of want to keep going just to see what happens next. Now, there's, there's a few Amazon has a baby. I mean... Yeah, no, no, Amazon doesn't doesn't have children with a hachette. That's a different novel entirely. Um, <laughs> right, so let's get into... What's it about? What's it about? So it's set in the Commonwealth world. Now, the Commonwealth world is Peter Hamilton's bespoke world where kind of space capitalism is sort of one. So if you're an anti-1% type of person, you might want to steer away from this sort of thing because the the politics are very, very much more towards the right than the left. And it's kind of inherent in the setting. So it's that sort of a world. It's that sort of a world where uh, you, you know free trade and capitalism have have won, um, and there's various reasons for that. Partially alien in- interference. There is an overwhelming theme of xenophobia. The the alien communists are coming for you, and they will destroy you. This is common in his earlier work. It's common all the way through, and it's in this as well. Um, this is the start of a new series um, of the Commonwealth series. Um, the basic plot, getting down to it, is, is we start off with Nigel Sheldon, who 
fans of uh, his Peter Hamilton's previous works will recognise as a self-proclaimed messiah of the modern age. He is a cross between Richard Branson and the God of Arrogance. <laughs> and, Tony, and, wow. Tony, and Tony Stark. He's very Tony Starky. Okay, um, that's better. And a little bit hippie as well. But in this world, every, we've defeated death. We've got um, longevity drugs are really common. People, you know, people in the middle classes live on a mortgage pretty much. But rather than their houses, it's their own lifespans. So you're kind of tied into working in order to live, literally, for your next rejuvenation treatment. Okay. So you know, but. Hamilton kind of glosses over the, the implications of this because he's all about the space opera. He's all about you know the, the, the big picture in the huge world. So Nigel Sheldon, who I must admit, because he's called Nigel, I do think it's just slightly comedy, uh, but that's a personal thing, um, gets a weird dream. Um, from He realises that it's clearly a communication from an alien race that's been introduced in other Commonwealth novels called the, the Riel, and there is something going on in a place called the Void, which is a part of space. It's actually part of subspace, really. Um, it's kind of kind of like a heaven, kind of like a heaven limbo fantasy land weirdness, like the promised land, like a promised land sort of thing. So he goes off and he decides to to investigate. Now, the way you travel from planet to planet in the Commonwealth world is by space train. They open up a warp hole, uh, a wormhole. They they Put a, put a train through it and you can go from planet to planet unfortunately if you want to go anywhere interesting anywhere beyond the Commonwealth you need to get yourself in a huge spaceship so they, they have the spaceship technology um, to, to expand further but obviously the further out you go the more difficult it is and getting to the void is very difficult and Nigel being Nigel his journey is not simple his journey is not safe, safe. and he finds himself crash landed on a world in the void. So his plan was to go and give it a prod and find out what was going on. But Nigel, being the sort of character he is, it just gets himself stuck, <laughs> essentially. Uh, so adventure capitalist. I, think, I, I like adventure capitalist. Adventure capitalist Nigel Sheldon finds himself stuck in a world um, where humans have already or humans have already colonised to an extent, um, and it's in the void. And the thing that the void does, and this is again another theme of Hamilton. Hamilton's is the void changes the laws of physics so in effect magic works so the people here their technology has been hard to maintain because they've they, they've crashed um, and they're, they're they're stuck in this world but they're using for want of a better word magic to to survive unfortunately there is a hideous alien menace that hatches from eggs falls falls from the sky hatches eggs and duplicates people so it's intelligent, it's powerful, it's violent, it's vicious, it's a homogenizing swarm, so it just wants to eat everything and conquer the world. Nom, nom, nom. And it looks like us! Until you shoot it in the head, in which case its blood is blue. But still, so what we've got is we've got a mix of paranoia, we've got a mix of space fantasy, we've got a mix of hard sci-fi. Um, it, it's a beautifully addictive blend of ideas. And it's very hard to put down. It's also not about Nigel. It's very much about the world. We meet other characters that we learn a lot more about and are much more engaging. Um, I really like Peter F. Hamilton. I don't like. I don't actually like the world of the Commonwealth very much. I have. I have huge issues with, with agency, with you know the way it's constructed, with all the rest of it. I have huge issues with, with that kind of approach. On the other hand. Every time I sit there going, I have a problem with this, a lovely idea comes across, and I'm like, oh, but I like that. (laughs) Um, So I always find myself consistently drawn in. I I fell in love with Peter F. Hamilton again through this book. Um, Again, I I wouldn't say, if if you are a fan of Peter F. Hamilton, then pick up The Abyss of Beyond Dreams. If you read his last series and you felt a bit meh, he's back on form. Uh, if you like the Night's Dawn, Dawn series, you'll love The Abyss Beyond Dreams. Um, if you don't know his books at all, read Misspent Youth instead, which I, I'm sure the, uh, uh, Macmillan would be like, no, no, plug our new book. No, seriously, read <laughs> Misspent Youth. It's brilliant. It's plug them both, plug them both. Uh, Misspent Youth is a, a wild ride which is set almost in the modern day about uh, essentially a very rich capitalist who finds the fountain of youth and it doesn't end well. Really? Uh, so... Um, very very good 
Awesome. It looks amazing. Uh, sounds interesting. Just remind us once more. Peter of Hamilton, The Abyss Beyond Dreams. It is available on. Uh, it's, it's available in hardback at the moment. You can also get it in ebook. Um, it's being produced by Pan Macmillan, I believe, under their Tor label, which is the one they used for sci-fi mm-hmm. and the like. Um, yeah, I mean, pick it up. Pick it up if you if you like space opera and you like big, heavy sci-fi novels. And you essentially have a slot in your schedule for a large book. Maybe you've just finished the Game of Thrones and you want something light. Across the world. 24 hours a day. This is Fatboyan International. So, coming up next, an interview with Emily St. John Mandel. This is Fab Radio International. Emily St. John Mandel, welcome to The Bookworm. Thank you so much. Thanks for interviewing me. What can you tell us about your latest novel, Station Eleven? Sure. Station Eleven is about a travelling Shakespearean theatre company in a post-apocalyptic North America. It's an interesting kind of apocalyptic world. Why is it the Georgia flu that kills everyone? A couple of reasons. I picked the flu because it's just so horrifically plausible. You know, if you're writing a post-apocalyptic narrative, you have to end the whole thing somehow. And I suppose you could invent some new exotic, particularly deadly virus, um, or you could make it, say, a nuclear holocaust. But then it automatically becomes a political novel, which I wasn't terribly interested in writing. And... You know, why invent a new pandemic when, when the flu is so plausible and when it struck us before? And as for why it's post-apocalyptic, there are a couple of reasons. The main one is that I wanted to write a love letter to this extraordinary world in which we find ourselves. And of course, there are many things about this world that are completely appalling. Um, but we're surrounded by a level of technology and infrastructure that... I think at any other point in human history would have been considered completely miraculous. You know, the way, for example, somebody walked into the room I'm sitting in this morning and flipped a switch and the room was flooded with electric light. Or the way water comes out of faucets, uh, our garbage is picked up. When we're in trouble, we can call for the police and they'll actually come. You know, these are extraordinary things that I think we too often take for granted to the extent that we don't even really see them anymore. So it seemed to me that one way to write about the modern world was to contemplate its absence. So for that reason, I decided to set the narrative in a post-apocalyptic setting. And I should mention, the book, you know, when I, when I call it a, a narrative about a post-apocalyptic traveling Shakespearean theater company, it's kind of my elevator pitch. I, um, a lot of the book also takes place in the world that's more or less the present day. It's a non-linear structure that moves back and forth in time. And it's also about some larger questions around um, what it means to devote a life to art, uh, the importance of art in our lives, um, questions of immortality, like what remains when everything else is lost, a few things along those lines. The modern-day character works on the graphic novel. Why did you pick that particular form of art? I think that graphic novels are an incredible form. I think it's a really exciting fresh way of telling a story. It also seemed to me that for people who had perhaps only experienced um, the post-apocalyptic world, which, uh, which is to clarify for the benefit of anybody who hasn't read the book, much of the, most of the post-apocalyptic sequences take place 20 years after this flu. So, so there are people um, and teenagers and young adults who really have absolutely no memory of the former world, and it seems quite abstract to them. So having some kind of visual representation that hints at the former world seemed to me to be a good idea, um, that it would make it more interesting. I suppose that was the main thing. Yeah, just my interest in the form and, uh, and the visual elements. The dynamic of the travelling theatre is very interesting indeed. Where does that come from? It just sort of naturally arose for me out of um, you know, what I've observed in groups, uh, mostly in workplaces that I've been in. And just a sort of abstract idea that you know, it's really hard to live with other people, just in general. Uh, you know, you always go back to uh, Sartre's famous quote, hell is other people, which the symphony, somebody in the symphony has changed that to hell is other flutes. Um, 
I think groups of people are fascinating, and exploring group dynamics is fascinating. And I think in a scenario like the one I described in the book, where is a very tight-knit, occasionally fractious, but tight-knit uh, group of people committed to the same project, which is you know, um, pr- performing and, and spreading Shakespeare and, and music throughout their territory, that it would be kind of a, a tangle of neuroses. You know, they just live in such close contact all the time. You're constantly bumping off of each other, so to speak. So it was interesting to me to write about the dynamics of, of such a large and, and in some ways self-contained group of people. What is the appeal of a post-apocalyptic world? I enjoy post-apocalyptic novels, so it was interesting to write one. I did want to write about the modern world, which is, which is why it was post-apocalyptic. When I think about the question in larger terms, you know, like, um, why, why is there such a general obsession with post-apocalyptic novels? It's really interesting. I think there's an argument to be made that these are somewhat anxious times we live in. You know, we're, um, we're contemplating climate change, um, you know, various other calamities, and that perhaps our interest in post-apocalyptic fiction is a natural expression of that nervousness. On the other hand, what argues against that is, if you look back at history, what time was there when it ever didn't seem like the world was ending? You, know, you consider how desperate um, and how dark everything must have seemed in, say, the First and the Second World War. Um, I think about 1968 in the United States, the uh, riots in the streets, political assassinations, the carnage of Vietnam, and even the times that didn't seem as though they would have been terribly awful. You know, when you look back in retrospect, my, uh, my mother said something interesting recently. She said that in the, in the late 70s and early 80s, when she was having children, her and her friends would talk about how guilty they felt about bringing children into this incredibly dangerous world where the threat of nuclear annihilation was so strong. So it, so it kind of uh, it brings me back to this idea that I don't really know what it is about these times that, that make post-apocalyptic fiction so appealing to so many people, since it does seem as though we always think the world's ending. I, uh, I think one explanation might just be Cormac McCarthy's 2006 novel, The Road, which was hugely influential to a lot of writers, myself included. And it's almost as though he gave us permission as literary writers to address this topic in a literary way, which formerly had been more the province of, I suppose, more, more pulp fiction, for lack of a better term. What's the next challenge that you face? Uh, my current and near future challenge is studying French. I, I've been trying very hard to learn the language and, and taking lessons, but I haven't had much time lately with the, uh, with the Station Eleven promotions, which have been a joy in and of themselves. So there's that. There's also a new novel in the works. I'm, I'm only about 30 pages in at the moment, so I'm afraid I have no idea what the plot is. But, but I'm looking forward to working on that a bit over the winter. Do you think your next book will appeal to genre fans? You know, I'm not sure to tell you the truth. I'm not trying to be coy. I just never know how these things will end when I, when I start writing them. Uh, yeah, it's too soon to say. I think I should have a better idea in about a year. What other sorts of creative projects would you quite like to do? In the novel, uh, the Station Eleven comic books you alluded to earlier, I think it would be wonderful if a graphic novelist were to develop that strip as, as, a, real, as a real graphic novel. I would love to see that. My uh, my UK publisher, Picador, commissioned an artist, the incredibly talented Nathan Burton, who also did the cover design, to uh, to actually recreate a couple of pages from the comic book. And I can't tell you how extraordinary it was to see that, you know, to see these images that had only ever described in text uh, brought to life. So, so, yeah, that would be my dream project if, if a graphic novelist were to take on the graphic novel in the book. Okay, so let's say you're stranded on a desert island and you have everything that you need, but you only have one book for company. What book is that? <laughs> only one book? Uh, that's a tough one. Uh, the complete works of William Shakespeare? Simpsons or Futurama? Simpsons. King Lear or A Midsummer Night's Dream? King Lear. Truth or Beauty? Uh, truth. Emily St. John Mandel, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, it's my pleasure. Embrace the Alternative with Fab Radio.
Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to the Bookworm on Fab Radio International. I'm Nympha Hayes. I'm here with the lovely Ed Fortune. Hello. <laughs> um, so as always, um, on a Sunday or whatever day you manage to actually listen to us, whether you're listening through um, iTunes or whether you're listening to Mixcloud or if you're actually with us right now, uh, we're talking about books. It's a book show. It's called The Bookworm. We've been talking about books. Please pay attention. Woohoo! So, um, today I would like to talk to you about Primal Storm, um, which is the second book in the Grand Man uh, Chronicles by R.A. Smith and um, Will of R.A. Smith. We don't. We do. We, we, we do. Who, who is Ari Smith? Was, was, was he on the show last week? Is Possibly. It was me, but it wasn't. It was him, but it wasn't. Uh, fair disclosure, uh, Ari Smith is a friend of the show. Uh, we're going to try and be as neutral as possible. Uh, we don't very often do reviews from people that we know that well, but we, we like the Primal, uh, the, the Grenchel series. It's um, very good. It, it's relevant to the whole urban fantasy genre and oeuvre. It introduces stuff into that growing scene that has not seen elsewhere. So we do think it's important. So we're going to talk about it. And yeah. if you're like, but 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 you know him and you've had drinks. We've had drinks with loads of authors. Yeah. That's how cool we, we are. Start name dropping, yeah. Edward. Same. Start no, the no, name dropping. No, because I'll, I'll sound like an absolute <laughs> arse. So. <laughs> So shall we get on with the business? Yes. So um, for those of you new to the Grantle Monarch Chronicles, the first book, Oblivion Storm, um, came out um, last year. And it's uh, urban fantasy, really good story. And it follows the the adventures of Rose slash Mary, um, who um, basically after an attack in the, in the underground uh, in London, um, finds herself into this really weird world where she can speak to ghosts and strange, strange things start to happen and she finds herself really entangled in it for reasons that she can't quite understand because she's lost her memory. Um, at the end of book one, her memory is mostly restored um, and um, we basically move on to another character's point of view mainly, uh, which is Jennifer, Jennifer Winter. Now, there's um, one of the things that I enjoy the most about these, these series is that there's a trio of heroines that are sort of um, the main three characters that you follow in, in this first instalment and second instalment of the series. I have a feeling the third one is going to be about the same, um, uh, which is uh, Mary... Kara and Jennifer and as I said Primal Storm focuses on Jennifer's story. Um, now Jennifer's really different from Mary as well um, whereas Mary has all this sort of like ghostly mysterious powers um, that tie her in with this um, weird uh, alternate dimension almost um, where, where there's almost sort of like supernatural powers that people can access um, Jennifer's powers are tied in with herself, her body um, she's incredibly fast has regenerative powers but she's not exactly sure where these powers come from um, at the beginning of Primal Storm uh, we find ourselves pretty much in sort of like a few weeks after the events of Oblivion Storm um, Jennifer isn't um, if you remember how it ended she's not on top of her form uh, however being Jennifer um, she still manages to find trouble and trouble comes in the form of a group of people that she discovers while taking a nighttime run that are trying to actually break into a museum uh, and not just any museum, but I don't want to give too much away. Um, so what happens? Jennifer, obviously, being Jennifer, tries to go and poke it and stop these people from doing bad things and gets into a whole lot of trouble. Uh, she gets transported to France, away from her friends, without access to her powers because she's very weak and discovers a whole new world. Uh, this will introduce her to actually discovering a lot more about herself, where her powers come from and who she is. Um, the great thing is you also get to follow Cara and Mary's side of the story. Um, so you'll you'll see the, the story unfolds from sort of two points of view. Um, you follow Cara and Mary and then you'll have Jennifer's point of view. Um, it's, it's fantastic twisty and turny plot with loads 
loads of action, like all of the action ever. Now, if I cut Oblivion Starman to like Candy Rock, mm. I would have found the word London running all the way through it. Absolutely. Is it the same with Primal Storm? Primal Storm is a little bit more international. However, there is a whole lot of history that still goes on in London, and London is very much uh, a, a, a character all in itself. Um, there's, there's powers that run through it, and I know there's, there's a few authors out there that have explored London as a portal almost for supernatural activities, uh, and Ari Smith does that really well, probably because he's from London and knows it really well. You see, I'm very tempted with... with the, that series to compare it to the Skyscraper Fawn series, mm. which is Tom Pollock's work, because they they both have they both have very strong female characters, very mm. strong female voices, um, with differing perspectives as well. There's a strong dynamic there, and you also have London as a character, London as a person. Pretty much, I think I think it's more obvious in. The, in Skyscraper Throne yes. than it is in Grenchel. The Skyscraper Throne, you know, London pretty much turns up and says, hello, I sit down and has a cup of tea. Yeah. London's a bit more subtle. It's more subtle, yes, but it is very much there. Um, what I did find, as I said, it, it's very, very action-based. There was action in Oblivion Storm, but it was a little bit slower paced and you also had the view from um, a different character that, was, that lived in a different era so sort of victorian times so there was a, a bit of a slower pace and obviously being mostly like a ghostly supernatural story almost it had um a sense of um sort of tranquility almost even in the action scenes this is fast-paced primal storm is like taking it up like 10 notches um jennifer runs around slashes cuts she's just amazing to watch because um, it's very very vivid as well and um, there's so much more plot that gets injected into the whole story um, sort of opening a lot of new windows into actually what is going on uh, because it's not just about ghosts and about powers but there's all this sort of secondary characters that come into play with all these weird powers that you just think mm, this is something this is getting bigger and bigger every time the first book suffered from that dreaded thing that many debut books suffer from which is a flabby middle where it was a little bit kind of you know it, the, the, the pace kind of started becoming less constant in the middle has it tightened up is it can we definitely oh god see a, this, a there's no vision? stopping this one it literally you can't put it down i've read it twice uh, and every time i'm kind of finding myself trying to keep up the pace because it's just so fast um when i was reading it the first time i actually felt like i was watching an episode of alias um if you've watched alias um which was an amazing series that is very much the feel of the book for me. When I reread it, I found um, I found almost a Bond-esque feel to it. I don't know if anyone who read it has had that feeling. There's especially with the baddies or the main baddie kind of in the story. There was there was almost a hmm, I expect him to have a cat now and stroke it, but it's it's very subtle. And it only just adds to the enjoyment of the book, I think. But definitely for me, if you enjoyed Alias as a series, this is very much what it feels like. So what is it again? What's the series? Where can we find them? How can I get my hands on the book? Who's the publisher? Woohoo! Uh, so this is Primal Storm. It's the second book in the Grand Soul Manor Chronicles by R.A. Smith. It's published by Skylar. Um, which is a, um, a small print, an American, American small, small print, um, that are doing some incredible things at the moment, getting bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger. You can find it um, online everywhere. Um, and if actually, if you happen to be at the um, UK lit steampunk market uh, on the on Saturday, the 11th of October, uh, I believe Mr. Smith will be there signing and selling copies. Cool. Uh, coming up next, we're going to talk very excitedly about the world of books. Across the world, 24 hours a day.
This is the bookworm, and today we've had a bit of a mismatch, haven't we? We've gone from space opera to urban fantasy. Well, what we've done is, we, I think we've gone for addictive reads, said he desperately clawing craw- for, for a, a theme. For a theme. <laughs> so a theme is addictive. Um, I tell you what I read recently that I really, really kind of just made me gasp. Uh, John Oliver does a series of anthologies for Solaris. And fearsome magic. So he's done fearsome journeys, and he's done fearsome other things. And he's he's very good at doing his kind of collection of stories. He's a thing called fearsome magic magics. And me being me, I split straight to the Francis Harding because I needed cheering up. Oh my giddy word! What a <laughs> remarkable short story that is. Um, I had a single single manly tear moment. Very very Aww. very 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 well done. Um, it's a really again I, you know, then I started reading the rest of it it's got Garth Nix and a whole load of other people in it I'll give it a proper review sometime soon I need to write it up for the magazine as well but John Oliver's just kind of like this book DJ he, just, <laughs> he, gets, he gets all these really good short story writers together and they, they, they just kind of like mix, he just mixes he gets the kind of the pacing right because mm. obviously I, I like to I Occasionally, I'll skip to one author, but I mean, we, we both recently read *Dangerous Women*. Yes. Um, and again, that's a, that, that's one that I think suffers from the fact that the first story is like, "Oh my goodness, it's brilliant," and the middle one's like, "Wow, this is brilliant," and one at the end's like, "Oh, this is quite good," and the rest of them are a bit paddy. Yeah. I, I feel. It's it's one of the things anthologies always need to look at. It's the fact that you either have really strong stories or you find yourself filling in the gaps when sometimes you know having less stories of a better quality might actually work better um i'm actually i've I've just started um the um first book in the uh, blood of eden series by julie kaukawa uh which is oh god what's it called the Oh, oh! I'm having a moment. The the two Julie Kaigua that spring to my mind are the Iron Fear stuff. It's the immortal and the immortal. The one with the Asian girl vampire. Yes, sword, that's that is it. Bike, that cutting is it. Off the heads of vampires. That's the one. Yeah. That is the one. Oh my god! What, what's, what? Tell me anything about it. Uh, it's the the first book on, on the Blood of Eden series, and it's called the, the no the oh Winter's god. Passage. No Iron Legends. No these. No those. That's the Iron Fear series. Watchers Blood are, of Eden. Oh, Blood of Eden. Immortal rules. The immortal rules. Yes. Watch. I'm just saying things that I can find on the website. That's <laughs> all I'm doing. <laughs> That's all good. But actually, I started reading it, and and I'm about seven chapters in, and oh my god, it's actually really interesting it, it's quite I, I read that ages ago and I really uh, it's on the one hand it's a hot Asian chick in biker levers riding around the wasteland killing monsters with her his sword and you sit there going um really uh, uh, see that sounds it, awesome to me but it, you know it sounds like it's been written by a teenage boy to me um, but I think it's already been optioned as a TV series or, or movie potential already but then they're, they're trying to buy all of them up aren't they, they are at the moment trying to buy all of the young adult books because they have realised that mm. people will watch them can you say Twilight can you say The Hunger Games oh god but see can, can you say pretty much anything by John well, Green I, I bought I bought the Divergent blu-ray and um and, oh my god it's so good it's so close to the book it's amazing um and i went i went to it with the trepidation of a woman that loved the trilogy <laughs> knowing that oh how could it ever be as good as the books actually it's pretty damn close um so i was very really really impressed and really pleased that they kept so close um they have a, an amazing kate winslet that pulls off the <laughs> character that she pulls off it's like, oh my god, you came out of the book. It's, tr- it's perfect. Um, I really like that. I really like that when they adapt something and you're just oh. like, yes, it works so yes. well. Yes, she is, as Janine, she is just 
perfection. Um, but the whole of it is just perfect, wonderful. Uh, but yeah, actually, I started reading it and I, f- I, I went into it with a, okay, I've had this book on my bookshelf for ages. I'm not quite sure what I want to read. I need something to bide my time because I've got three titles that I'm sort of like wanting to review um, and that I'll be I'll be starting very shortly. Uh, two of them by... Um, um, well, one of them is a better reading of a project that's coming out next month for um, a Deanna Hardy, which I'm really excited about. Mm-hmm. Um, and we like Deanna Hardy. We do. Sure. And then the other two are um, Elizabeth Morgan's reissued um, Cranberry Blood and She-Wolf, uh, which is paranormal romance. Um, and they look so good. But I need to get to them with a reviewer kind of <laughs> mind as opposed to a fan squee, oh my God, kind of mind. I've been meaning to do Louise Lowry's The Giver at some point. Because it was written in 1993, mm. and it, it's seen as the start of young adult dystopia. Okay. Um, and they made it into a movie, and unfortunately, because the book itself is all allegorical, uh. and it's very full of metaphor, and it's very thick with metaphor, it's a good read, but the movie, they sit there going, yeah, when you actually make that person a person rather than a metaphor, it falls on its ass because it makes no sense. Yeah. Um, so you know you have that you have you know it, it's it, some people are saying oh well the the Giver movie has has killed the idea of young adult spin-offs so there'll be no more Twilight clones yeah sure no <laughs> no complete nonsense there was an no. absolute yeah pile of course there will um, um, out there. But Absolutely, and there the will be forever and ever because you know it's a thing now and it's a big thing. And they've realized, wait a second, it's not actually just young adults that read it, adults enjoy that too. Um, how fasc- many times can we remarket this? The fascinating thing is that the people of a certain age get into the industry and then they bring stuff. I was thinking about this this morning with Dr. Him. Is you look look at a lot of new new here and there's people going, oh, it's not like the classic TV series. I tell you what, a lot of it is like though, really is like it's like the new adventure books. Mm. A lot of it is very similar to and feels a lot more like the books and novels and comic strips of Doctor Who, rather than the the TV series of you know the shout outs of the TV series. But I think the people who are now in charge of Doctor Who read an awful lot of the, the spin-off novelizations, read an awful lot, and now that they're in their 40s and 50s and are now in charge, they're kind of, that's how they're interpreting who. And I think it's going to be the same with stuff like um, Harry Potter is going to completely change an entire generation of fiction. Absolutely. Because we're already seeing stuff about wizards. I need to read the Baxter series. The Baxter series is about a, a guy who is the chosen one and there is another kid in his school who's also the chosen one. <laughs> and he's, he, he, he's full of destiny. He's uh, upper middle class. Um, the, this other guy is really arrogant and, um, you know, he's got uh, like an arrogant clique of friends as well. It's Malfoy uh, versus Potter if they were both the chosen ones. No, it's Potter as seen by someone who isn't Harry Potter or his mates. Oh dear. So if, you, if you're just the kid who's in at Hogwarts who just wants a decent wizarding education. <laughs> oh my. That that fool Potter causing problems again. But I uh, know the Baxter series looks really good and it's on my list to, to kind of get through. Um, I think the, basically he, the, the main character is, is, is the chosen one. But those who are wealthier and have more influence are saying that he can't possibly be the chosen one because he's the wrong sort of person. <laughs> uh, oh, for goodness. Yes. Which is, which you people know nothing about tropes. I know, right? <laughs> I know, right? Uh, but yeah, loads, loads of interesting chats today. I do apologise, my voice has uh, deserted me. Um, so, so if you hear a bit of a, <laughs> that's just my voice, is not me. It's if, not me at all. If you're listening to the show, uh, give us a plug. We could do a plug. We could really do with reviews on iTunes. Here's what you want to say. A word-seeking book show is awesome and deserves an award. <laughs> Any award. Best baker, um, you what know, biggest you fish. We'd, we'd take Big Baker, Best Baker. That'd be good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We like that. Yeah, yeah. Book show like most likely to be turned off. We don't want that one. <laughs> no, no, we don't want that one. But you know, if you must, then we'll take it. <laughs> oh, there, there's a bit of 
book news that I completely went straight past. Uh, and the producer's staring at me because we're finishing towards the end of the show. But um, a Retro Hugo Award went for about uh, $20,000 um, in, in a recent estate sale. That's strange. Who wants a, a second-hand Hugo Award? But Jonathan Ross. <laughs> and, and on that note... And on that note... I think we'd better leave. Embrace the alternative with Fab Radio. So, you've been listening to The Bookworm. You can find us at Radio Bookworm on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr's Radio Bookworm on Mixcloud and iTunes. And it's goodbye from me, Ed Fortune. And goodbye from me, Nympha Hayes. The Bookworm is a truly outrageous production for Fab Radio International and Starburst magazine. Presented by Ed Fortune and Nympha Hayes. Produced by A.L. Johnson. <laughs>